0: All right, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 5 this morning. Mark chapter 5. Feels like it's been a long time since we've been able to get into Mark's gospel. Last week, of course, we had a special guest speaker, Dan Anderson from Appalachian Bible College, and I had the opportunity to sit with you and hear the Word of God opened up. Uh, So I have had two weeks to work on this one sermon, so uh, we're going to take about twice as long as normal, maybe, we'll see. Actually, I'm going to go a little bit quicker uh, simply because we have communion as well today. Um, since it's been a while since we've been in Mark's Gospel, just as a brief, very brief reminder, we're in the middle of a section about Jesus' authority. Uh, Jesus is not like many of us may have thought, he doesn't come on the scene and make suggestions, he gives commands. Uh, He's not overly sensitive to uh, the situation and, um, you know, overly sensitive to making claims on authority. He is the Son of God, and he makes demands of people. A few weeks ago, we saw that that's not only true about people, it's true of storms. We saw Jesus' authority over a storm when he spoke to the storm and the sea as rational beings, and he gave them a command. He commanded them saying, my translation, muzzle it and be still. And the disciples were amazed that the storms obeyed him. But as soon as Jesus gets off the boat, uh, a, a raging, powerful, possessed man comes charging at Jesus, only to collapse in a pile at his feet. This man was so powerful before that no amount of restraint could withhold him. He was filled with thousands of demons, a legion. Yet Jesus is victorious and the man's demons are released into the pigs. And this freed man becomes a powerful witness for Jesus into, uh, in, in his home regions. And so, To this point, we have seen that Jesus is more powerful than storms and demons. But this morning, we're going to close out our discussion on Jesus's authority and power in Mark chapter five, and we'll see that he is victorious over two other extreme forces, extreme forces, disease and death. I think in just about anyone's top five or 10 greatest fears, these two fears would always be present. In fact, I went online, did a little research, top 10 greatest fears, and I found these two fears on every list that I consulted. Some people might fear bugs, or snakes, or public speaking, or deep water. But more people than that fear disease, a lifelong fear debilitating disease. And, and even more than that, fear death. Because we know death is not the way things should be. It's not natural. It's, it's our greatest enemy. On a personal note, as I was thinking about all these things, you know, I I would, much personally, I would much rather face a storm or a demon than I would death. And so Mark records in this text how Jesus overcomes death and disease. And he, he, he does so by weaving two stories together. He's done this before. Remember, he, he embeds one story within another to teach us a very valuable lesson. That's what he does in our text this morning. And so I want to invite you to start into these two stories. The first story is of a a woman or a young girl who's who's uh, facing death. And then there's a story of a woman who's been diseased for 12 years. So let's look at verse 21 of, of chapter five. I'll read just a few verses. It says, and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. There came out one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be be made well and live. And he went with him and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Here, these two stories start with an update of Jesus's situation. Jesus has come back now across the Sea of Galilee to the west side of the sea. And as soon as he he does this in a boat, as soon as he gets out of the boat, a great crowd forms again. People know who Jesus is. On this side of the sea, and then another man comes rushing to Jesus. This man is named Jairus, and he's one of the rulers of the synagogue, probably here in the city of Capernaum. Just a few observations about Jairus. Jairus was a wealthy man. He's a wealthy man. Later on, we're going to find out he has a house and he has uh, multiple rooms in the house, and we know that he's a ruler of the synagogue, so he's exalted to this position of leadership in the city of Capernaum. He's a wealthy man, but despite his wealth and his position, he humbles himself and he falls at Jesus' feet, just like the demoniac did at the beginning of the chapter. One of the things you'll see in this text is everyone's falling at Jesus' feet. So here, Jairus falls at Jesus' feet. Jairus is not concerned for himself, only his little girl. His daughter, it's implied, is, is so sick that she can't even travel to see him. I mean, imagine Jairus watching his little 12-year-old girl dying and then deciding to leave her to go try to secure her only chance to get Jesus. So Jairus rushes to Jesus and begs him. I I want to look closely at what he actually says to Jesus. It's short, but it's powerful. First, he explains to Jesus that his daughter is at the point of death. That's how the ESV translates this phrase, this word, at the point of death. It's a word that's often used in the Bible, the end times that people face as a whole, that the world will face. She's at her end time. She's at her end, the final or last point. She's at her extreme. Second, after this brief explanation of her condition, Jairus gives Jesus some commands. He says two commands, come, lay your hands on her, which is a very bold move for Jairus, right? I have to admit, one of my pet peeves in life is when someone comes into the room and starts making commands or lashing out imperatives, unless they're like a supervisor or like of higher rank or something, I totally get that. But for like people functioning on the same level, and so it's one of my pet peeves in life, I I often find myself, I'm correcting myself first, but I correct my children too, they'll tell you. As so I tell my children, instead of making a demand or issuing a command, make a request. So it's not, uh, you know, give me those or take your hands off that. It's, could you please give me one of those? You know, making requests. Yet there are some times in our life when we don't have time for such pleasantries, you know, to arrange everything properly. When things are urgent, we often give people only one or two words, and many times they're commands. Things like, stop, get down, or come here. See, simple commands, short, And that's what I think this man is doing here. Perhaps this man didn't put much thinking or thought into what he would say to Jesus. He just thinks on his way to Jesus. He leaves his dying daughter. He just thinks, I've got to get Jesus to my daughter. So he says, come, lay your hands on her. He gives these commands. And then he finally explains the purposes for Jesus following the commands. If Jesus comes and he lays his hands on his daughter, Jairus knows that she will be made well. The text says, Uh, right there at the end of verse 23, so that she may be made well and live. Okay, and so this first story starts here. It's part one of Jesus helping Jairus's daughter, but now it's going to be interrupted by another story. We'll return to this story in a a bit uh, after this, but now we, we go to the second story, verses 25 through 34, where Jesus heals a suffering woman. And there are Actually, five characteristics of this woman I'd like to emphasize just briefly as we go through the text to help us understand her story. First, we see her condition in verses 25 and 26. Look at verse 25. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And so here Mark gives us insight into her condition. Uh, the picture I get here is of one of, probably one of the most marginalized people in the entire first century. She is not only a woman, she is a woman who is cere- ceremonially unclean always. Always. And so she suffers from a continual discharge of blood that would make her always unclean. And, and so all of the rules of uncleanness would apply to her. She would never be allowed to come in contact with other people. She'd be consistently isolated from all other human beings. Now, the text does say that there's an exception to this, and that is that occasionally she could pay to see a doctor or a physician. So as we're continuing to look at her condition, she had seen many doctors, and yet they were not able to help her at all. Matter of fact, as I looked at this text in these verses this week, um, the language reveals the source, that the source of much of her pain was the treatment that these doctors had given to her. Matter of fact, the phrase right at the end of verse 26, it says, she had suffered much under many physicians. I think it could be translated, she had suffered much from many physicians. Another way of saying this is, is by is asking the question, what was causing her much pain? And the grammar of the text reveals, uh, it, it points the finger at the doctors and their remedies. Okay? There were other things going on too, but the, the doctors, far from helping her, had only managed to make the situation worse. I mean, if you stop and even think about this for a moment, I mean, imagine how archaic The medical practices of doctors would have been in this area over 2,000 years ago. And I kind of read some of that this week. I mean, it's horrifying. This woman is not only in pain, always unclean, she's now also poor. The text says that she had spent all of her money on the false cures of these doctors. Before we go farther in the story, I just want to take a moment. I want to learn an observation from Jesus or about Jesus. I want to point out the fact that Jesus was willing to help both the rich and the poor. Okay, so one of the things I, can, I think we can learn from him is he's helping a rich synagogue ruler here and a poor unclean woman. And so what we see throughout the gospels is Jesus is offering help to all people, regardless of their economic status or their different backgrounds. And That's my heart for our church as well, that we would follow the the example of Jesus, that we would not discriminate in, in any way from those around us. When people say, you know, who are you burdened to reach in your area? And the question is everyone, like everyone around us, regardless of their background, how much they make, what positions they hold, where they come from, what ethnic heritage they possess, we are to offer the gospel to everyone. So, our mission statement as a church is we're to display God's glory by making disciples through the gospel of grace. And when we get to the middle of that, making disciples, it's, I think it's just, we need to understand it's making disciples of any and all people around us. Like any, no bias. Anyone. In Virginia Beach, we're surrounded by rich and poor. We're surrounded by people of different backgrounds and heritage. Our city is a melting pot, and and often so too are our neighborhoods. Think of your own neighborhood. Different ethnic backgrounds, different social statuses. But we should invite all others into our yards, our homes, and our church. That's Jesus here ministering to the wealthy, rich ruler, and then this woman. Her condition is she's a woman, unclean, isolated, suffering, and poor. That leads her to make a decision. That's the second characteristic I would show you. Verse 27, her decision. It says, uh, there she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said... If I touch even his garment, I will be made well. Here the woman breaks all protocol. She goes undercover. She's not even supposed to be there, but she's, she's desperate. So she, she walks up behind Jesus. The text doesn't tell us why. Pro, probably to avoid detection or the disclosure of her, her infirmity to other people. And she walks behind him and she touches him, touches his garment. And the text uh, helps us even more. It says that he, she touches his garments because of something, okay? And then it says, uh, it says this, for she said, okay? And when I first went through the text, I was trying to figure out, like, who did she tell this to? But the other gospel accounts are helpful here because she was saying this, not to other people, she was saying this to herself. You ever talk to yourself before about your problems? Okay, so yeah, we, we all do it. She had been, she'd been telling herself something, She decided to touch the the fringe or the tassel in his garment because she'd been telling himself that if I can even touch his garment, I will be made well. That's what she had told herself. If I can touch his garments, I would have enough access to healing power to do something that 12 years of doctor's visits could not do. I could be healed. That leads to her cure in verse 29. This goes pretty quickly. Her cure... And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. So as soon as she touches Jesus' garment, she is not only cured, she knows it. She knows it. But the story turns in an interesting direction in verses 30 through 33. And uh, so I want to read through there. Here we'll see her confession and Jesus' confrontation. Look at verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out for him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Here, after this woman is healed, Jesus confronts her and we get her confession. Jesus starts by asking who had touched him. I, I love the reply of the disciples. It's so funny, isn't it? It's like, uh, well, you know, what do you mean who touched you? Who hasn't touched you? Uh, then, uh, but, but, you know, Jesus is not deterred by this. Okay, he's, he's undeterred. He, he keeps pressing for more information. I'm sure it's making this woman very uncomfortable you know, hoping the disciples' answer is just going to, like, solve it for her. Jesus, like, cast aside their answer. He says, no, who, who's done this? That leads to some, some speculation among the commentaries regarding this. The question they consider is, did Jesus not know who it was that actually touched them? Okay, and there are different ways to look at this. I don't think it's a big deal either way. I mean, some people would say, no, he didn't really know. This is a evidence of his humanity. He knew that That God, through the Spirit, had had used him, his, his garments or his body, to actually heal someone. He just didn't know who it was. So some people say that. Others, however, suggest that he actually did know who it was, but he was pressing this woman to demonstrate her faith outwardly. He wanted everyone else to see it. Regardless, she realizes that she's been caught. She falls at his feet like all the others before And she tells him everything that happened. And so then Jesus responds in verse 34. Look in your Bible, verse 34. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So regarding this woman, we saw her condition, her decision, her cure, her confession, and now her faith. Jesus responds by putting the woman at ease leaving her at peace, explaining that she is indeed healed and she'll remain that way. But one point of emphasis that he makes here that's very important for you to see is that he put an emphasis on the fact that it was her faith that was the cause of her newfound health. I think it may be that the woman had a kind of a faulty view of things. It may be that she had a magical or superstitious view of Jesus and his clothing. You say, well, that's ridiculous, you know. Who would believe in something like magical clothes? However, I point out that, you know, even today there are some people deceived into thinking there can be something like magical clothes, clothes that have been near to or touched by or prayed over some holy man or holy person that they would be endued with power. But so Jesus clarifies for her and for everyone else. It was her faith, her trust or belief in Christ that made her well, not close. And so when Jesus encounters disease here in this woman, he heals her, disease loses. The woman is healed by her faith in Jesus. But there's a part of the story that's left to be told and that's the end of the story with Jairus and his daughter. And so I want to look at verses 35 and 36 and we'll continue through the text. It says, While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. I make a few points here I think that are important. First of all, one thing that strikes me in this text is, the result of the delay uh, in the woman coming to Jesus and all of that action and everything that took place, this delay creates you know, the time for this young girl to die. As I was thinking about the delay, I was thinking, you know, how might the ruler feel about all of this? Imagine if you're the ruler, got Jesus, you're just trying to get him, just... Just go see my daughter. And then this this woman comes along. She's been sick for 12 years. She could wait a little bit longer. And she breaks all the rules of triage, right? And she inserts herself in healing. And then Jesus takes the time to talk with her. Imagine this ruler. But then, you know, I thought, one of the things I think we learned from this text is we learned that even when there's delay, Jesus is in complete control of the situation. God's in complete control. I thought, you know, one of of the lessons we probably need to learn from Jesus in this text and from the, the things that's going on is in our own life when we pray and we want God to do something, we want him to deliver us from the circumstances, we want him to heal someone we love and it doesn't seem like there's any answer. We need to learn as well that Jesus is always in control. Even when it doesn't look like much is happening. God is sovereign over it all. Regardless, this man hears a report that his daughter has died. The text says then, Jesus either, and it could be translated, he either ignores or he overhears the report as well. And instead of allowing the man to become disheartened by the report, he, he gives him this talent, this command. Do not fear, but Believe. I think this statement from Jesus continues an emphasis in this text that is, I think, the main point of these narratives. Yes, the narratives are about the authority of Jesus. He is sovereign Lord over disease. He will be as well over death, we're going to see it in a moment. But these texts are here to show the reader, that's you and I, along with a whole host of other people who have lived throughout the history of time to show the reader that we must respond in faith or belief to him as the authoritative Lord over all. Matter of fact, I want to make, take just a moment and I want to talk a little bit about the nature of faith in these two stories. There are two lessons about faith that I think these narratives, these stories teach us. There's probably more, but these two were especially dear to me this week. First, We learn, I think in these texts, that faith empowers us. Faith in Christ empowers us to overcome obstacles. I see this in both stories. Regarding the woman with the issue of blood, I'll just read David Garland's quote here, uh, words from David Garland, a a commentator on Mark. He says, the woman works her way through the crowd and overcomes any sense of shame that she might have had or, or fear that she might somehow contaminate Jesus or others by reaching out to touch Jesus, okay? What compelled her to overcome the obstacles? Faith. The other story, the synagogue ruler overcomes, he's going to overcome the announcement of his daughter's death. I think it's at least strongly implied by the end of this text that this man somehow has faith to believe that Jesus can even raise someone from the dead, raise his daughter from the dead. I mean, he'd overcome other things before. He'd overcome bursting through the the crowds. He'd overcome falling at Jesus's feet. And so we learn that faith empowers us to overcome obstacles in our circumstances. But then secondly, and and this is this phrase, do not fear, but believe. We learn that faith, I want you to consider this for a moment. Faith, is the opposite of doubt and fear. Faith is the opposite of fear. One of the things I learned as I go throughout the New Testament is that faith is not a static thing, right? It's not like you have it or you don't. It should be growing, but it can, faith can be growing or it can be, like, diminishing. And so at times, faith can be imperfect or halting or laced with fear and trepidation, but faith can also be bold and brave and robust. So Jesus reminds us here in this text that faith is the opposite of fear. He says, do not fear, but believe. Okay, so with this ruler, what Jesus is actually telling him is instead of putting your focus on the reality of your daughter's death in fear and trepidation, trust me. Keep your focus on Christ. And men and women, that's a very important lesson for all of us to consider and to continue to grow and learn it. When we get overwhelmed in the circumstances of life, we see someone that we love going through something very difficult. It's so easy for us to revert back to fear, to fear the situation, to fear what's going on when what Jesus would have us do would be to turn our riveted attention to Jesus himself. To grow in our knowledge and understanding of who he is, his character. To really believe and know that he is Lord over all of these things, and he's in control. And regardless of whether God intervenes to rescue you or your loved ones, we can always trust him. So we don't know the end of the story here, but I was recalling the story of Martin Luther a bit. I was reading one author describe Martin Luther's lowest point in life. He said it this way. He said, the time was when his beloved daughter, Magdalena, barely 14 years of age, was stricken with the plague. Broken hearted, Luther knelt beside her bed and begged God to release her from the pain every day. When she died, the carpenters were nailing down the lid of her coffin and Luther screamed out, hammer away, on doomsday, she will rise again. I think both Jairus and Luther show faith and Luther's faith actually might even be more profound because he demonstrates a willingness to trust even when our hope shifts from this world to the next. Fine, you know, the older I get in life, the more and more my hopes are rooted in the next life. The next life. So, some point in my journey, that's all I'm going to have left. All my hope will be in Jesus and heaven before I die. And so Jesus calls the ruler here to unflinching faith without any traces of doubt or fear. Next then, Jesus arrives at the ruler's house. Look at verses 37 through 40. We'll go quickly through this. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion. People weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Next, Jesus arrives here at the house. For some reason, he forbids the crowds from following him. He allows the man and three of his followers, Peter, James, and John, to go with him. We don't know why. It may be because of the urgency of the situation. He needs to get there. When he arrives, he sees these paid weepers mourning. They're mourning and lamenting what's going on with the little girl. And Jesus responds by explaining to them, you know, there's no reason to mourn. She's not dead. She's just sleeping. And I think that just totally shocks the weepers in the crowds. They just think that's completely ludicrous. That's ridiculous because it was evident to everyone that she had died. Matter of fact, when I go to the other accounts, Matthew and Luke, and they describe this, they just make it very clear she was dead. What Jesus is saying here is unfathomable. So Jesus gets rid of all the people, like, like the middle of verse 40. But he put them all outside. He's rid of all of them. He removes them goes into an inner room where the child is. Look at verse 40. But he puts them all outside, middle of the verse, and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So Jesus walks into the room here with the child's father and mother and his three disciples. He then tenderly, tenderly takes the child by her hand and he says two words in Aramaic, Talitha Kumi, which could be translated something like little girl or honey, sweetheart. The text says here, arise, I think it also be translated wake up. Honey, wake up. One of the things I'm noticing about Jesus, this is like standard protocol for him. He like, when he runs into a problem, he gives like two or three words. You know, it's demons, muzzle it and come out of them. Facing the storms, muzzle it and be still. So his normal practice is to sometimes identify the object that he's talking to, like in this case, little girl. Wake up. Gives a command, and it happens. And so she's, she rises from the dead. Begins to walk around, is able to eat. text says that people respond with utter amazement. I mean, it's a powerful expression. They're amazed with great bewilderment or astonishment. And then Jesus again challenges them not to tell others what had happened. I think the time for the full unveiling of his Messiahship had not yet quite been accomplished for when he fully reveals himself, it will lead to his soon crucifixion. So as we go through the story and we close, I want to ask two quick questions of application as we end. First, from these stories, will you decide to trust God with your health, with your disease, potentially also death? Instead of cowering in fear, focused on the disease. Will you give Jesus your riveted attention? You say, well, it's easy for you to preach when you're relatively healthy. I would ask you to remind me of this as well. And I I gently and pastorally ask you this question today. I know that many of you are going through difficulties. You're facing disease in and of yourself. Will you focus more on the person of Jesus and ask for grace and strength to believe and trust him then you will your disease final point of application or question i ask is will you trust god with your loved ones jesus asked Jairus not to fear but to respond with fear's opposite faith. So will your view of Christ's sovereign lordship over our lives bring comfort and peace to you even when it touches you closely? Will you ask God to increase your faith in him even when going through excruciating circumstances? Men and women, we must choose faith, not fear. Because Jesus is Lord over disease and death. They're both under his control. We can trust him. Let's pray together. Father, as I prepared this sermon this morning, or this week, I should say, prayed through it this morning, name after name, a person within our own assembly, the person's within our own assembly, came to mind. Uh, Lord, I, I feel uh, that this text can be especially encouraging to any Christian, but especially those who are going through difficulty or know of loved ones doing so. And so, Father, while conviction might be necessary, I pray that comfort and challenge and encouragement to believe Jesus would be the primary message that we hear this morning. Lord, I know from personal experience that when I'm overwhelmed and my, my focus can very quickly and easily come to the circumstances. But yet, when you give me grace to actually put my focus on Jesus, my whole perspective changes. Everything changes. Even if the trial or the difficulty, I think of Luther's words about his daughter. Even if the hope is in the next world, We still have faith, we still believe, and we know that you're in control. Thank you for an authoritative Lord who's powerful over storms, demons, disease, and death. We pray, Lord, now as we transition to the table, that we might be able to rejoice in this sovereign one who defeated death himself.